Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm J.N. Nelly. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and I have seen the Sonic movie trailer, and I wish I was dead. <laughs> I'm Brian Dawes, and I'm constantly refreshing my email and my eBay page to check to make sure that I'm still getting my Mythic Edition. I'm Ashley Barrow, and if you want to see my cold open, you have to buy a novel coming out in several months. Oh no. I'm Carrie Thomas, and I'm just... I feel like I'm in a pit of despair. We were supposed to have some Magic the Gathering portal news today, but alas, recording on Thursday and there has been no news. This, <laughs> this app is escaping us all. And I'm going to sip on my tea, literally. For as much as you've wa- uh, wailed on them for Portal, Carrie, I am amazed that you forgot that there was supposed to be news today. <laughs> I had missed last week's recording, so I feel like I would have been reminded then. But I also like forget that weekly MTG is a thing, especially when you have more um, popular topics going on in the community. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so today is our War of the Spark Ravnica novel podcast episode. Uh, Before we get to that, we just want to mention last week, we didn't really get to the Japanese alternate art Planeswalkers. That's because I forgot. (laughs) Which look, they look fantastic. They look fantastic. I don't like having uh, foreign language cards in my decks because it leads to confusion a lot of the times. Um, But like... I really want to get a couple of those and just have like the regular version on standby. You can find the regular version on Gatherer with all the rulings. Yeah, jerk. You can, but when you're sitting there at the table and like, hold on, do I get LTE in this shop? Yeah. I think it's also bold to assume that anybody uses Gatherer. Shh. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> chilling. Oh, wow. So for a long time, I had the anime dual deck chandra in one of my decks when i used to play in high school like at my local shop and i kept a printout of the english card and like no one would ever believe me they'd be like you changed that i'm like how do you not know what this card does so don't overestimate people's ability to know what cards do people are freaking out about their price and availability and i want to remind people that war of the spark is a standard set which means it will be reprinted to demand Watsi has opened up distribution of Japanese boxes globally, and the Japanese Planeswalkers will be included in Magic, um, in Corset 2020 promotional prize boosters. So the stuff you get at like standard showdowns and stuff that have a couple fancy cards in them as prizes, uh, those will also have the Japanese Planeswalkers globally. So in a couple months, there's going to be a heck of a lot more of these things out in the wild. So that's my MTG fine aunt's advice of <laughs> probably the entire run of this show because I'm not talking about it otherwise. I cannot wait till prints and whatnot are available. Um, apparently, um, Vorthos Mike has said that um, MTG Japan is working on getting the prints available, and I cannot wait for this because I know that my girlfriend is actively looking for a Soren print, so. A Soren? Yep. Oh, that Soren art is good. 
the Japanese team has been really good about art stuff, so that's really good to hear. You know what we should do is link to a thread um, done by Shifunbut on um, all these arts. Um, the, the artists that they dug up, not even dug up, they're all like really big time Japanese artists. Um, the Watsi's Japanese team worked on the whole promotion. They are just heavy hitters of of anime and manga and, and video game art. So So we'll link to that thread because it's neat and it's cool to see that kind of promotion in that part of the world take advantage of all the awesome talent that is just right under their nose. Let's move on to our topic of the week, War of the Spark Ravnica by Greg Weissman. So uh, we learned this week that War of the Spark Ravnica is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, The Delray account tweeted out that it uh, opened at number five, I believe, this week. So that's a that's a first for a magic novel, which is which was just very cool to to see. What a bunch of nerds. <laughs> so before we get into this, I need to talk a little bit about my role. I was a contract editor, essentially, on the novel uh, I've had a couple different, <laughs> I've been referred to a couple different ways, consulting lore master, uh, continuity consultant. My job with the novel was to work with the editorial team, uh, which was Nick Kelman from Wizards of the Coast on the franchise team, uh, Tom Holler from Del Rey, and Greg. I was the probably the most minor member of the team. I would typically see the drafts and, and give comments, but I wasn't part of like the, um, the 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 a lot of the big discussions. Obviously, because I have my own job, I can't be calling into editorial meetings all the time. With that said, it was very much a a team effort. the The reason I was brought on was kind of as a backstop against characterization and continuity errors and things along those lines. Uh, (laughs) how much of that got through, you know, obviously when we have thousands of people reading the book, uh, it crowdsources a little better and, you know, people have varying opinions over things, but I just wanted to give my background here, um, and what I did working on the novel. Uh, I had a lot of fun working on it and let's start to talk about it. So before we get into it, actually, we should also mention that some of the novel starts in media res, which essentially means the Ravnica side of the story had been progressing, an event had happened, and it picks up after that event in this novel. The prequels will cover that period of Ravnica, and your mileage may vary on how much you're okay with having the, the, the background there info dump. Uh, I didn't have a problem with it, but with the novel out there now, I know that is a criticism that people had for it. So just be advised. At the end of the podcast, we'll all talk about our overall story thoughts and whether or not we liked or would recommend the novel. Uh, but for now, let's talk about the characters and characterizations. So let's start with the new character who got the most characterization or the most chapters teo verada so what did everyone think about teo he's a precious cinnamon roll and he's a good boy (laughs) 
I think you could tell he got most of the... He just got the most fleshed out characters throughout the novel. Like, I know people have kind of split that title between him and Rat, but just out of Planeswalker status alone, I think he's the most relatable and the one you learn about the actual most. He's so good. Um, I was ready to. I was ready to not like him because there's just so many fantasy stories about like a very special little boy who is just an average little boy and he goes on a great adventure. Like there's so many of those, but he's actually good and I actually liked him a lot. So yeah, that's great. Teo isn't just an average boy going on an adventure though. He's a below average boy who gets thrown into the middle of a war and has to deal with that. And, and learns that he's not actually awful. His, his origin seems like he was in a very bad place where he was being berated by the people who should trust in his abilities and who should love and support him. Um, he belongs to a monastic order of shield mages. And um, I'm, I'm happy he's not on Gobokan anymore because it seems like his life sucked there. He should go hang out with people who actually care about him and actually like him and actually think he's doing a good job because he is doing a good job. I think one of the subtle ways that that gets played out in the novel is um, on Gobakan, the monks have a series of chants that they do to use their shield mage magic. Teo starts the novel um, reciting all these chants. By the middle of the novel, um, there are a couple mentions of chanting trailing off during fights as things get more intense. And by the end of the novel, he's throwing up shields with his instincts. He's even throwing, like, batches of light offensively in some circumstances. He is pushing his talents beyond what he was taught. So there's a very clear progression of him shedding the bad self-esteem and becoming confident in, in his own abilities, uh, which is really wholesome. And I'm really glad happened for a new character all within this one story. And it's just so nice. He's so good. You might say his abilities progressed at a geometric rate. <laughs> I've been saving that one. Why would I oh. say that? Because <laughs> he's the geometry wizard. Oh. One thing to note is that this story progresses over the course of one day, so he made huge strides in that single day under intense pressure, kind of like a diamond. Yeah, as he gives up on the uh, kind of orthodoxy that he was taught, he finds doing it his own way actually works better, even though it's not the way the abbot would have preferred it. You could say it happened in one day under intense pressure like a diamond. You could also say it happened in one day under intense pressure like the romance between Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock in Speed, but sure. <laughs> I think it's very ironic that um, the other Planeswalker character we have who studied at a monastery and started out being very crappy... Uh, or, yeah, the other Planeswalker character we have who studied at a monastery also started out being very crappy. Good monks aren't that interesting, I guess. <laughs> well, we have Narset. Yeah. This is true. This is true. <laughs> I, and I like her. Yeah. There wasn't much for him to learn on Gobakan. Um, their primary chant was just that defense. 
defense. And I thought that was I thought that took me out of the story a lot, but um, this is the second time that we've gotten uh, official magic fiction where a character has uh, thought about toilets in depth. Oh yeah, the oh, yeah. second plumbing. time. He's he's real passionate about plumbing, which tells you all you need to know about his home. Twice in the last year, including um, the uh, Vivian Reed stories, where she had a prison cell with a magic chamber pot in it. Toilets are funny, and you should include them in as many stories as possible. Absolutely. So, moving on to the other big new character of the novel, Arathia Shakta, or as she's better known, Rat. She's not a planeswalker. She's not a planeswalker, no. Doesn't matter. That you know of. I would die for her. Well, I was just clarifying that she's not a planeswalker, so people don't. Well, think I thought I said character. Did I say planeswalker? No, I'm. I, but uh, but I'm letting people know. Oh, okay. The people right. need to know, Jay. So you know, like Teo, she's a kind of a introductory character to help newer readers uh, figure out what the heck is going on in this story. Um, she is the Ravnican native who's you know streetwise and knows everything that's going on. For a reason that was kind of left unsaid for a while and was revealed later in the novel. So she has that kind of weird ability where she, many people can't see her. It's just like a perception thing, correct? It's like a perception filter, right? So she's not actually, she doesn't have like an illusion spell on or like has camouflage or something like that. It's just like a perception filter where most people can't see her because they are not all that open. It's kind of like what I imagine Skulk being in story. That awful mechanic that Watsi got rid of after a couple tries, but yeah, that that's how I imagine Skulk. Oh yeah, that's a that's an interesting thought. Um that her her ability kind of corresponds to Skulk that if she's beneath notice, they 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 don't see her. I thought that that's an interesting idea. Yeah, people don't really see me either. Well, that's because you're short. That's <laughs> so she's a she's a very chatty character, but that is largely because she rarely has people who actually notice her and can talk to her. Um, and so it it comes off like, oh wow, she she sure talks a lot at the start, but then as you go on, you're like, oh, she's desperate for human companionship. Now I feel like a monster. Yep. (laughs) (sighs) I love her. She's good. She's my favorite character from the book. So her relationship with Hikara is like a a big thing in the book. Um, We don't really know. I mean, as the reader of this, we don't know much about Hikara uh, except through the lens of Rat at this point. Um, And we know that Hikara was one of the few people who could see her without any trouble. Uh, but then Hikara dies, and when she comes back, kind of tragically, as as a um, as a blood witch, Hikara can no longer see Rat. And Rat is sad about this. It's disappointing. Even if you don't know who Hikara is, you know it's like impactful to Rat. And I was, it was, it was, it was hard to hard to read. So let's talk about Kaya. She got a vastly expanded role in this novel from. You know, the one piece of short, one short story she had previously starred in. What did everyone think about Kaya? She's awesome. Yeah, she's great. She's as good as I thought she was going to be. Um, and she was very impressive. And 
I, I was very intrigued by the idea that she had all these... She was burdened by the amount of contracts that the Orzhov has in her mantle of leadership of the guild, and I'm very interested to see how that progresses. If she decides to pass that off to um, somebody else, like Tessa, or... I also want to know if that travels with her if she decides to plane walk off Ravnica. But I guess that'll, we'll find out a little bit more about that later, especially since she's been hired to do something else off of Ravnica that we will discuss later. I liked Kaya's character and personality from that Conspiracy 2 short story, and that gets to continue in this book. Um, she's very enjoyable to read, and um, I think what's really interesting about her that I really enjoyed, uh, she gets to join the Gatewatch. And in her Gatewatch speech, she talks about how, uh, you know, her number one rule was like, look out for yourself. Um, you know, I have a moral code, but I it was always focused on me and this whole ordeal, this whole war, the spark and watching you Gatewatch folks work is actually inspiring. And I'm a changed person and I realize I can do a lot more to help other people. And I want to be able to do more of that, so I would like to join you folks. And we get on Watsi's back a bunch for not giving us wholesome and hopeful storylines. But it feels like Kaya's is finally doing something right, where it's just like, hey, the good guys were good and inspired someone to be better. And it's just left at that. It's not done ironically. It's not done with any sarcasm. It just gets to be nice. And that was really good to see. So what's interesting about Kaya is the plot hook about her home plane. Oh boy. Where she, in the novel, mentions that she uh, was working for Bolas for help on her home plane. But as the novel goes on, she's like, I'm starting to suspect he might have been behind what happened here. Yeah, it's not super clear. She just mentions that Bolas mucked around in something on her plane. She also mentions a former lover um, who we don't know anything about, but we get a name. Jonah, yeah. There was a detail she mentioned about some other species on her world. Uh, there are centaurs on her yeah. plane. So that's a neat little clue. There were, there were a couple, um, for a couple characters, there were neat clues about things that exist on their home planes. I, I know for Teo, um, he recognized elves and minotaurs? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's cool. Um, I, I wonder if, like, his is the world that, um, oh, what's her face? From the original Commander deck, Zedru is from. Because um, she, she's kind of like an Ibex minotaur. Oh no, that that's ear though. So that already has a, a name. No, that's that's uh, Ruhan of the Fomori. He's a, he's not a minotaur. He's a giant. Oh, you're right. You're right. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Because the Fomori giants have horns, which makes them look like minotaurs. It's weird. Because uh, I know I know he had discussed when Amonkhet was right around the corner that Zedru might be from there because um, she has this kind of desert environment and is an ibex. Or gazelle-looking minotaur. But uh, maybe it's Gobukan. Who knows? My personal favorite planeswalker, well, up until he, he, he dies. Sorry. Spoiler alert. It's not allowed to be your favorite anymore. <laughs> when I was on the ECC panel, they're like, who's your favorite planeswalker? And I'm like, you murdered 
he's murdered. So uh, let me go with Doretti now. Uh, but no, Dak Faden, I enjoyed. He gets like more lines uh, in this novel than I think he did in maybe his entire comic series, just because of the way comics work. So Dak was a lot of fun to work with. Uh, one of the challenges there is knowing that he was going to die, resolving his cliffhanger. So, you know, the, that gets kind of dribbled out through his chapters as we go. He, he wishes he still had that massive gauntlet of power. And uh, we learn that Ravos spirited him out of the underworld. Ravos is one of the, I think it was C-17? Uh, the four color ones. So Ravos is one of the characters introduced in C-17, and in his little blurb, Ravos is mentioned as uh, essentially being a smuggler out of the underworld. He's an acolyte of Athreos that defies his own god by sneaking people out of the underworld. It's really cool. Gee, I wonder if that will ever come up. There's nobody in Theros's underworld that anybody cares about. Give me my Elsbeth, man! Give it! Give it! So the list of uh, items that Dak was casing on Innistrad, some of them are pretty obvious, like the Grimoire of the Dead. And if you've read Children of the Nameless, the Sealand Stone was in there. But there's, uh, there's one or two that are they're more deep cuts. There was a, um, what was the name of the sword? Bloodletter. So Bloodletter is from the original Innistrad side fiction that came out, I think, on, like, social media platforms, or in dribs and drabs, it was like a series of letters back and forth. It is titled The Cursed Blade. Yeah, The Cursed Blade. So if you want to look up those stories now, um, it was a magical sword that goes unaccounted for by the end of that uh, back and forth that kind of sums up the issues around the original Innistrad. Oh, you're not even going to mention the fandom favorite characters that are in those side fictions? Please. Oh, <laughs> we we don't need to get into Gisa and, and Geralf right now. They're they're great. They're great though. Um, yeah, but there's one more fun little artifact that is mentioned in that. Yeah, line. I thought it was weird that there was a Marari on Innistrad, but <laughs> you know, maybe he made more. Karn hid those things like Easter eggs. No, because uh, there there's also a mention of a an amulet of the Kralmar. I think it was an amulet, oh, yeah. whatever it was. It was something of the Kramar, but the, the Kramar is a giant kraken that lives off the coast of Nephalia that is worshipped by Reno Stromkirk, the vampire blood lord, and a bunch of his culty sea monster worshipping vampire followers, which is awesome. And weird, because we also know the Kramar was mutated by Emrakul, so who knows what's going on with that thing now. So... I liked Dak in this. It 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 his themes in here did kind of um resonate with his comic where he he's very wavering on whether or not he's a hero. He likes to act like he's not a hero, but like without fail, whenever there's someone in trouble, he's like jumping in to help before he stops to think about what he's doing. So, he was he was really one of my favorite characters. I'm glad he got a decent send-off here cuz I I liked his chapters a lot. So, what should what you should know about me reading this book is that I had not seen the card set the first time I was reading through. I don't remember if it was the outline or the or the first draft, but like reading it in that context, not having a trailer 
that kind of gave away him getting stabbed in the back and his spark ripped out. Like, I really thought Dak Faden might be joining the Gatewatch right up until he was killed. So from that lens, it was really, really good. And I, I wish everyone else had been able to get that perspective on it. Yeah, I feel like that would have, that would have been about the same feeling I had if we got to remove the trailer from the equation. Okay, time for my first big criticism of this book. Because, like, look, I love Dak. He is the greatest himbo in the multiverse. He is so fun as a character. I don't know what his purpose in this novel is. His arc has no relevance to anything thematically or narratively. He is here to die as a named planeswalker. That's all I can surmise from from his role in this book so like i like that i like bringing dak into the main magic story we've been waiting that for that for a while but this feels like a wasted opportunity and i'm going to talk about more structural problems with the novel later but one of them could have been solved by just cutting dak out of the book agreed i totally agree like he was good but like why was why was he there and like like the it's not that the chapters with him are badly written or that he's not a good character it's just for this piece of work for this medium for this moment i don't think this is where any of dak fade and stuff should have overlapped yeah and that's the thing i feel like the thread was yeah the thread was foreign and it's just like being woven into the story until it gets cut out and, yeah, I mean, I, I'm i excited to have Dak back in a story, but we already had enough protagonists, I feel like. As much as I enjoyed having him in the story, we could have gone without. Yeah, cause like, let me know if I'm missing something, but I feel like he, he, he had some part in the, in, in the closing of the portal, but I feel like that could have been achieved by anybody else, like just distracting Tezzeret long enough to shut the portal or something, but I don't know if that's just me or it's it was super loose for him to be there. Okay, that's an, that's enough of the Hurt Jay's feelings hour. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, like, I enjoyed him being in there. It's just, like, it was a packed book, and I feel like, well, there were multiple places where I thought they could cut for space, and, yeah, I agree with Lorelai that this was an obvious one. Hey, we're not hurting Jay's feelings. If he wasn't there, he would have died. <laughs> <laughs> so let's... I, I, I am okay. Uh, my favorite fictional character... Well, a, a character I really enjoyed from Magic Story dying is um, sad, but I've also had many, many months to cope with it at this point. So let's move to, uh, to Jace. So... Jace in this story um, had a bit of a challenge because, you know, there was there's a lot of expectations around his characterization. One thing that I think was really important here is that after Jace shows up on Dominaria and all he has to say is bad things about Liliana, that he didn't come across like a sociopath ready to murder her just because he realized she's uh, not on their side, and that he's very deliberative about it. Um, 
he I've seen I've seen different reads of what's going on with his character there, but my interpretation was essentially one Jace, you know, realizes and has no desire to get back with Liliana, but he realizes that he still cares about her, which is pretty normal even if you've been in an abusive relationship. You still have feelings for the other person, even if you are done with them, so to speak. Um, so having that in there, I think, helped keep him from coming across like a sociopath because of the inevitable, you know, assassination attempt that kind of had to happen since she was controlling the Eternals. It was a challenge to attempt um, exploring Jason Liliana in this story and i don't i don't think it came across successfully there was in my opinion and other people's opinions that i've shared on twitter a significant amount of time that needed to be dedicated to making that work and i think that part of that is yeah like jay said a result of how people read the dominaria story but at the same time, like, if the Dominaria story went cleanly, and if this story didn't need to do all of that work, kind of renormalizing him, we could have just left it with Chandra's comment on the, like, comment at the beginning of the book where she's like, oh, well, they slept together. And it's like, okay, you've established that they've had a relationship in the past. We don't need to drag in very complex emotional feelings about this. Um... Jace obviously doesn't trust her because she's on Team Bolas, but we don't really need to explore as much in depth, and we can cut some of the time out of the novel. And I'm with I'm with Carrie on that. Yeah, which I guess most of my criticisms boil down to is like there was a lot of handholding that needed to be done in this novel that should have been done other places chronologically in our world's time before this book was released. Jace is obviously a contentious issue in Magic Story over the last year uh, for people who have been around for Ixalan and then Dominaria and now War of the Spark. And um, agree with Carrie that a lot of the passages about Jace being conflicted about what to do about Liliana are largely for a newer audience who isn't already familiar with the times he went through those places of conflict during previous blocks um and 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 again that that is going that is a major criticism i have of of the novel as a whole uh structurally but um specifically to jace's conflicting thoughts about what to do about liliana how he actually feels uh i think it's a very important moment that the story should show is Jace realizing not only that Liliana abused him, but that he in his past has been an abuser. Um, that's something that is very hard to come to terms with. And especially if you're trying to better yourself with which Jace is. Jace has shown a lot of growth in Ixalan. I think Jace in this novel shows so much of that growth, but in a different vector from a positive healing relationship with Vraska, um, this novel really uncovers a lot of the damage Jace still has inside him. It's not like he lost his memories, regained it, and it was magically 100% better. These moments 
really explore Jace's conflict within himself about can he be a better person, um, how he is navigating his own experiences, and feeling some sympathy uh, based on that because he still he understands that Liliana is in a similar position that that he was in before and maybe has hopefully reached some of the same conclusions about herself that Jace did and uh it, it's most most of his passages is about giving Liliana the opportunity to potentially be better if he doesn't have to kill her which he believes he does and then circumstances change and, and Liliana is allowed to leave but it's it's a hard it, it's hard passages to read um and they're hard to analyze at that point because of that. But I think they were doing a lot of good work, even if they could have been shorter. I don't I don't think they took up too much space. And I think part of the reason it feels like they took up so much space is because the Jace Frasca thing is not explored hardly at all. Which I think at this point means we should move on to Vraska. Because Greg did a phenomenal job with a lot of characters. Except Vraska, in my opinion. I think Vraska chugged the dumbass juice, and part of it is events that happened in the the Django Wexler stories that we don't get to read yet. So um, I, I think part of the problem with this book is we're supposed to have all these emotional beats for Vraska that are rooted in events we haven't read yet, so they fall flat. But then Vraska does this thing where she's like, I'm a monster and I want to die! Oh, wait, I saw Jace. Now I don't want to die. And then they do get to kiss, but it feels really forced and unearned by both parties. Because, like, we learn offhand that Vraska got her memories back from some rando. Yeah, how about that? Not from Jace, which was the whole setup. Vraska just feels like a complete dropping the ball. Um, I don't I don't know where that happened. In, in working on the story and playing it, planning it out. But I, all I'm going to say about Vraska is that um, she, she, was, she was the one character where I, I looked at this book and said, oh, honey, no. I, I will comment that if you pulled the community and said, like, what are the top three events that you are looking forward to happening in War of the Spark? Like, we know Gideon will use the Black Plate on Bolas, um and Bolas will eventually be defeated. But I think Jace, like, the whole lead-up to Jace calling Captain, or Jace calling Vraska Captain, was a hotly anticipated item that just never got delivered, and I felt bad reading it. Yeah, it's hard for me to to comment on that, because I, I have seen some of the prequel stuff, um, and I can... You shouldn't comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can I can see how you would feel that way. Yeah, yeah, and and I just don't have the opportunity to look at it within the scope of the rest of Frasca's story because I don't have that yet, which is a problem with the release schedule. And I'm not going to talk more about that, but it's it's just an unfortunate situation that I think undercut what should have been some stronger emotional beats um, or at least things that I could understand better. All right, so let's move on to Gideon. So I talked a little bit about the heroic sacrifice side of Gideon's whole thing and how he wasn't making things about him. 
but there's been a lot of pretty good criticisms about uh, the the kind of passive uh, suicidal ideation angle, and I'd recommend Finthorn Joe on Twitter. He put together a uh, great article on Hipsters of the Coast that kind of examines Gideon's whole arc. We talked about that. We talked about Gideon's arc already quite a bit with all the cards that came out around it. But based on this story, do any of you have anything to add? I just felt like his arc wasn't finished. I I feel like that was not a good ending for him. And I'm not like, oh, I don't think characters should ever die. I just feel like it should be at the right place, and I didn't feel like it's the right place. Any screaming. I have a lot of conflicts about the Gideon and Liliana interaction that leads to Gideon's death and Liliana surviving. I think I'll talk more specifically about how I wish that scene had went when we talk about Liliana. Um, for Gideon, though, I think... I think just having him die is just... It's the most basal, easy answer to a Gideon arc. I don't think there's a lot of emotional or narrative impact to have the guy who has been wanting to die for four years now die. Um, That's not very interesting character development to me. Like, you get the moment of him offering to be a hero by saving someone else instead of himself. But... To me, it would have been more interesting to have Gideon live, um, especially after Hour of Devastation, where he has a reason to live, he decides, because he needs to defeat Bolas. It was a letdown in a lot of ways. I just feel like it's a more interesting character decision to have Gideon live, and okay, he's wanted to die, but then he wanted to live, and now he's done the thing that he said he wanted to live for. And where does he go from there, I think is a much more interesting question than, oh, this is his moment where he maybe decides he is actually going to die now. Um, And I'm just not super happy with it. And I think it's weird that he is with Chandra in all the promotional images for Valor's Reach, the new mobile game, when he just died in the story. Don't even get me started. This one, I'll say, is something that maybe we talk about when we have some some overall uh, critical look back at, like, everything having to do with this set. Because this is obviously a plot point that was scripted out years ago. It, it's, it's really heavily foreshadowed in his origin story. I've written about the Gideon arc, and working through the way they built his origin story, his arc ends with him dying. Um, which is just, it's just, eh, it's eh as a story. I think it could have been better. Here's what I think. It's, I think it's easy to kill characters, but it's a lot harder to write them, uh, not dying. It's a lot easier. It's a lot harder to write them, like, actually learning stuff and dealing with not being dead. I think it's yeah. just really easy to kill a character because then they're just dead. So, palate cleanser, let's move on. To Ral Zarek. They're gay. Ral and Tomek and are Tomek. gay. They are homosexuals and they smooch and they hug and Ral is so precious and is so worried about Tomek. But Tomek is like, don't worry, I got this stuff. I'm a lawyer. Like, it's so good. They're so good. They're the best boys. Hashtag Jess guys. All of that. I like them a lot. Yeah. 
Ral having someone just flat out tell Ral get over yourself uh is so important for him. <laughs> yeah, Tomek doesn't get to be in the novel a whole lot. He spends most of the novel missing and Ral worrying about him. But um he does show up near the end and the limited characterization he gets I think is really effective and I think he and Ral are really good foils and I want to see so much more of them. Like, it's it's so good. By the way, if you didn't see the card arts, Ral's card from Guilds of Ravnica, he's holding that white cloth, and everyone's like, what's that for? It's Tomix, and Tomix has a red cloth tied around his wrist, because it's Ral's, because they're gay, because they're boyfriends, and they live together. It's it's so good. I try not to get all fangirly about relationships and stuff, but this was so cute, I was just screeching. Like, I turned 13 again. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was very sweet, and it finally gave the answer to the question of what the heck was that cloth that Raoul was holding, because it's been it's been real hard not to tell anybody <laughs> for a long while. I was dying. How hard was it not to tell us specifically? It's really hard not to tell you all this stuff, uh, but also I can carp- compartmentalize pretty well. So I mean I mean I like knowing more than everybody else so like that helps me keep secrets. I mean <laughs> we're we're almost to Modern Horizons preview season. I've been holding on to that set for a whole year. So um I do a good job because it's fun for me cuz I get to know things. I will say as my comment on Ralzeric and Tomic not to bring the discussion down but there is a extremely laughable comment on the Amazon page which I've been watching to see what the actual consensus is, and it is titled, Keep Your Anti-Straight White Propagandist Agenda Out of Your Game. I knew it was And it is somebody who (laughs) took the time to buy the Kindle edition and be mad. So if you would mind going to that page looking for that review and clicking on Report Abuse, because there are some very toxic pieces of, um, there's some very toxic language in there. It'd be appreciated. (laughs) Oh boy, oh boy, if if people don't like, like, gay stuff in Magic, uh, I, I hope they all know that I get to write for this game. So, side note, one last thing about that. Ra- I've seen a lot of comments about Ral's thirst for Gideon. Oh, it's And great. I want you to know, it is canonically something that existed well before now. I don't remember if it was Project Lightning Bug. Oh, it is, it is in this very arena, right? In, yeah, it was it was one or the other where he talks about the striking planeswalk, very striking planeswalker. I don't think anybody spotted. questioned that. I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody in the multiverse has a, at least a little bit of Gideon thirst, at least a little bit. Even Bolus. I mean, how could you not? I'm I'm straight, but he's just like he's he's like a marble statue. Exactly, it's just impressive. I'm like Literally. I'm gay, and even I know, like he, I've got eyes, <laughs> I can see. All right, so let's move on to Liliana Vess. She's a character in the book. <laughs> she sure is. So, She's not one I'm obligated to care about. <laughs> Liliana has a point of view, uh, some point of view chapters, but they are kind of interspersed with like the bolus ones. Basically, they're like the between act one uh, chapters, but she's pretty much in one place the whole time. And... She spends the whole time essentially wondering if dying turning on Bolus is worth it. 
and eventually comes to the <laughs> conclusion. Okay. That, yeah. Okay, <laughs> hold on, though. Turning on Bolas is not worth it. Not at all. I have an audio clip to prove that. <laughs> you guys know the one. Yes, I right, do. But, but seriously, I just didn't enjoy her in this book. Like, I was pretty compelled by the trailer. I liked the idea of her being there, but how it was executed was very um, stand on the Citadel and bemoan Bolas existing and not taking action fast enough, frankly. <laughs> so, Or she's going to get her comeuppance for not acting fast enough. I felt she was really, despite being a villain, very damselly. Like, not, not too much, but enough that it was strange. And it is interesting that this book took, if you've known me for longer than a few years, you know how hard I used to stand Liliana, but after this book, like, I hate her so much. Like, not as a character, but, like, as a person. I'm like, you're so bad. I hate you. She's so funny, though. I loved her. Um, was it Tezzeret that she called a flunky? <laughs> she doesn't have a lot of respect for Tezzeret. Who does? Tezzeret has a really weird set of circumstances in this book. Like, and I've never been the biggest Liliana fan. Um, and I felt like I could understand her point of view. Her giving the Eternals the limited amount of leeway that they have to do things. They couldn't go indoors. And she was doing, she was just giving them enough leeway to cause the havoc that Bolas wanted for to attract planeswalkers and to get them involved with the fight, but still not completely turning on her because at the very least, she's always a survivor and has her own self-interest at heart until the end. So it's, I, I kind of, I understand where a lot of people are coming from where they don't really care for her activity in the book, but I kind of get it in the way the book was written or her lines were written in the book or her introspection was written in the book. I kind of get it and I understand it, even though I understand why people wouldn't care for it. So what I'll say about Liliana's arc in this story not necessarily just the novel, but like the War of the Sparks story, is it's finally when Liliana starts to interest me as a character because she has always felt very one note to me where, oh, it's she's always going to do whatever is her best interest. Yes, she, she looks fabulous while she's raising zombies uh, and she's like screwing other people over. Um, and I thought she was like a interesting character, but not someone like I was particularly excited to read about. But after this, I'm very excited to see what's next for her character. It's funny that we have like the complete opposite feelings about her. It's like we're complex people. Yeah, I know. It's like almost <laughs> like people can think differently. Like I've always loved her. And then now after this, I'm like, I'm ready for you to go. I'm so tired of her. <laughs> I feel like I sympathize more with Mirren's siding with Phyrexians because they want to survive than I do Liliana, somebody who went through the emotional growth of Dominaria, just deciding to go with this until um, pretty much the last possible second she could. So I'm not super happy with her internal conflicts in this book. They don't resonate with me as Liliana. She's a lot more headstrong and confident 
Um, even in her moments of weakness, she is not as depressing and depressed as she is in this book. The moment, like the moment, the trailer had the emotional impact of Liliana's decision that the book did not have. Um, and that was kind of disappointing for me. But I think I think a couple really interesting things happened um, in that she was protected by the Onaki ghosts in the chain veil. And she still has the chain veil. And she's planes walked away with the chain veil and the chain veil's still there and still a thing. She also walked away with Bolus's spirit gem. Yeah, that's... The egg is gonna nutty. hatch <laughs> into a new Bolus. The spirit gem which Ugin has a connection to and can see through and, like, was the focal point of the Elder Spell, and now we have a new weird magical artifact that exists in the multiverse outside of Bolus's control, and Liliana has it. And that is... That is more exciting narratively than anything Liliana talked about in her own mind in this book, I think, for me. And, like, I really don't like... There were there were moments at the end where she's watching Gideon die and is like, oh, maybe I could save everybody. I'm like, no, that's just, like, not her character. Her character is I can save myself and, like, screw you, Bolas. That's, that's the emotional beat of that scene, and I don't think that was great. Um, the little, uh, the egg, the as soul gem as you wrongly called it it's gonna hatch into a new little bolus and then they're gonna have to deal with that except liliana is not going to raise him as her son and i think that's a good name little bolus just l-i-l bolus and i think you've established a new threat to the multiverse is is this like an adventure time when they bring the lich back as a baby trying yes, to raise him that's exactly what i was actually <laughs> thinking of <laughs> all right this week, our discussion of the characters and characterization went a little bit long, so we're going to stop right about here, and next time we're going to pick up with a little bit more discussion of the set pieces, the uh, the little odds and ends in the novel, uh, maybe some of the metaphysics and the, the plot threads and where they might be going, uh, but... We did promise our listeners at the start our overall story, thoughts, and opinions. So let's go ahead and give that, because if someone was waiting on this podcast to decide whether or not they wanted to pick up the novel, uh, we can give that to them now without getting to the set pieces. So for me, keeping in mind that I had a financial interest in this novel, uh, I did legitimately enjoy it. Obviously, a lot of people had a harder time with the in-media res stuff than, than I did, uh, but I enjoyed it. It's something I have read four times now, <laughs> uh, once just for fun to prepare for this podcast. Uh, the other times were, were for work, but it did not feel like a drag at any point. Uh, so if you are the kind of person who likes you know, magic story or tie-in uh, media fiction like this, you'll probably get something out of it. And that's really all I have to say, <laughs> say about it. I liked it. I would recommend it to people, and I have been recommending it to people. Lorelai, 
overall, I liked the the book. I, I generally enjoyed reading it. Um, there are a lot of structural problems I have with it, but it is filled with a lot of really, really good little moments. And um, pretty much everyone who appears in this book, whether they have a major role or a minor role, gets to do something cool. There are a lot of cool throwbacks and callbacks and Easter eggs. I mean, the the new people that are introduced are really fun and exciting. Like we mentioned, uh, Teo and Rat and um, Hikara does show up a bit at the end and she's fun. Uh, they're great characters. I, I think Greg did the did an amazing job with the new stuff that he brought to Magic. Um, and for the most part, did a good job with the existing characters. It It's fine. It's a fine novel. They're, uh, the, the bar for Magic novels is somewhat low. Um, and I think this is better than a lot of the Magic fiction I've read. It's not the best Magic fiction I've read. It's not close. It's it's not great. It's not awful. It's fine. It's really fast-paced, so it does go fast. So it's not like it's fine and it drags. It's fine and it keeps moving. And and honestly, shout out to Greg Wiseman, who was given an impossible task, um, which I'll talk more about next week, because this book had to do so many things. Um, I think he did as well as anyone could have done on this project. Um, so, so major kudos for that. It's fine. If you love Magic Story, go ahead and read it. If you're not super excited about it, um, I would wait for the Django Wexler stories, read those first, then read this, so you get it in the actual order. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it was fine. Um, yeah, I kind of mirror um, Lorelai's stance on it. I've, I enjoyed the book for the most part. Um, there were some portions where things could have been done a little bit differently. I'm a my biggest complaint is the timing of the prequels, which had a direct influence on a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but a number of the characters and their decisions and positions on certain other people in the book. Um, so I feel like that is my biggest complaint with the book. Um, it not coming out after those prequel stories, which are, which actually laid the ground for a lot of, for some very important dialogue and conflicts. But um, I did enjoy the book for the most part um, and would recommend it, especially if you can get them, if you read it after the Django Wexler prequel stories come out. Yeah, I was, uh, overall, it's a good read. Um, it was interesting. There was a few parts that were slow, but overall, I wasn't, I wasn't bored reading it. I wasn't, like, forcing myself to read it. But I was ultimately disappointed, not just because I've already said I've got, um, I'm invested in Gideon and Liliana and I felt like neither of them were handled well. I was not happy with how either of them ended up and I'm also incredibly invested in Ravnica and this was not a Ravnica story. It wasn't supposed to be but we've been waiting so long for a Ravnica story that is this could have been amazing and I still would have been disappointed because I'm still waiting on the Ravnica story that we haven't gotten yet. So I think that made a lot of people including me just like kind of grumpy going into it. I mean, I'll echo a lot of sentiments. My two actual criticisms of the story are that it's trying to do too much, which Lorelai will emphasize on or elaborate on next week, and that it feels like a story outline or skeleton, not so much in content-wise, but as in you have to hit these story beats 
and we are hitting so many story beats that there's not actually as much emotional story, um, especially for the non-introductory characters. Um, and then removing myself from the actual novel, this was, in my opinion, not the right time to do a novel. It was our equivalent to Endgame, and going into Endgame without any previous knowledge of any of the characters just doesn't have the same effect, and it shouldn't have been advertised as an introductory product, in my opinion. But again, we're all here. <laughs> we'll talk all about that next week. Uh, we we are we're gonna. I I have a lot of big picture things to say about about story production too. Yeah, next week's gonna be meaty and honest and gross. Um, and if y'all out there would like to hear it live, you can head over to Patreon.com/slash/TheVorthosCast. Everyone who supports our show gets access to our Discord community, where we have Vorthoses from around the world discussing magic story and our cute pets and our fun, exciting lives and all that stuff. Um, it's a great community. We have a couple higher tiers as well. Every month we do a short episode called Pull from the Deep, where we discuss a topic that isn't going to come up in a normal podcast. Uh, we recently actually just shifted that. Uh, we used to have everyone who was available do an episode, but I think we're, we're experimenting with a thing where one of us does a kind of specific topic. I think it's going to be fun. Um, it's going to get you to know um, us a little bit better as as people and the things we're interested in and, and how that intersects with magic. Um, so that's going to be a fun little feature for you. Um, and then at our highest tier level, you can get access to live listens of the podcast. So right now, as we're recording, we have a bunch of patrons on our Discord listening to us record, getting to hear everything we say a couple days early, uh, chatting with us before and after the shows, and uh, just, just enjoying enjoying the live experience um it's it's a bit different than hearing it on on mondays when we release the full episodes and if that's something you're interested in head over there if not just uh thanks for listening um we appreciate everyone who supports the show whether you support us on patreon or not um we cannot do the show without our fan support so super big thank you to everyone out there and in lieu of support, we will be taking Masterpiece Editions, if anybody <laughs> has them. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.